Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. Well, as we have an opportunity to uh, kind of focus our hearts and minds on God's Word this evening, uh, I want us to take up and consider this theme of discipleship. And this is going to be more of a, maybe more of a Bible study than it is a sermon per se. But discipleship is a, is a vital part of the life of the church. It's literally why God has left us here on earth after he has called us to himself. I mean, for the purpose of discipleship. So, so for us as, as a church and as believers, in order to fulfill our calling and to walk in obedience to that calling, we, we need to, um, I think we need to understand this, this uh, topic of discipleship. Our church kind of uh, statement of purpose is that we are a, uh, our goal is to mu- mature, multiply and mature disciples of Christ who run to win. Um, and uh, so discipleship is kind of at the heart of, um, of what our purpose is as a church. So we want to be able to, uh, if we're going to fulfill that calling, we need to be able to define what it is, what discipleship is, as well as, um, you know, some ideas of how we go about it. So what I want to do this evening is to do a little bit of both. We're going to define what discipleship is, and then we're going to pick it apart a little bit, uh, looking at maybe two, there's two, two key elements. We'll look at one this evening, and then again, one in a couple of weeks. So let me give you a, dis- a definition of discipleship. And I think that this kind of holds up as you look across the New Testament, especially. And it's a little long, so um, if you've heard that, you know, some of you have heard this before in different contexts, but I just want to give it to you. If we think about what is discipleship in the scriptures, you can define it this way. It is to purposely exemplify in oneself and reproduce in another through the vehicle of a Christian friendship, measurable spiritual progress. I'll say that again because I know that's a lot of parts to it. First, Discipleship is purposely exemplifying in oneself, in you, and reproducing in another person through the vehicle of a Christian friendship, measurable spiritual progress. And every part of that definition is important. Um, if you take any one of those out, then it doesn't work. It, that's not, then it's no longer biblical discipleship. Um, the first part, the first kind of section is to purposely exemplify godliness in oneself, uh, to purposely exemplify measurable spiritual progress in our own lives. And the goal then is to take that reality in us and somehow, some way, reproduce that in some measure in another person, another human being, in the church, um, even an unbeliever, to bring them to the knowledge of Christ through the gospel. So, um, and the means to that, and that's why I say I encourage you to listen to that message on friendship that we did last summer. The means, the most effective way to do that is through the vehicle of a Christian friendship. It's out of a real genuine love for and concern for others. And that is born in the context of relationships. So, you know, there can be this kind of I'm the discipler and you're the disciplee, but in reality, spiritual discipleship should be in the context of friendship. There may be a very organized kind of structure to that discipleship, but we want to understand that first and foremost, it is a friendship, a spiritual friendship that is wrought in Christ in the truth. So discipleship begins with purposely exemplifying in ourselves 
measurable spiritual progress. And that's what I want us to consider tonight. Uh, turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3. Again, we looked at that a little bit this morning, but 2 Peter chapter 3, the very final verses of Peter's letter, he says this, he says, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. He says, so guard your own heart, because the whole book is, is a warning against false teaching. And then he says this in verse 18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So as we turn our attention to this theme of discipleship, we need to start by addressing our own hearts. We need to start by looking inward rather than outward. Peter's command here in verse 18, it raises an interesting question. And the question is this, are you growing in grace? Are you making, individually, measurable spiritual progress in your Christian life? And that's not an insignificant question. The reality is, the time that we've been given on this earth is limited, right? We, we can't get that back. When it's gone, it's gone. God's, uh, the time he's given us is not infinite, and it's not in, in endless supply. And the day is approaching when the quality of our faith is going to be tested. You know, we're going to be tested, do we build on the rock or did we build on the sand, as Jesus says in Matthew 7? And so each of us as Christians has a responsibility to be, uh, take up this work of making disciples. That's why God, as I said, left us here on the earth, to be disciple makers. And that might prompt a question in your mind like, well, who am I supposed to be discipling? And that's, that's an important question, and, and that is one that we'll tackle next time, um, next Sunday evening that we get together here. But what I want us to do this evening is to look inward, to look at our own hearts, because you cannot, and I've mentioned this to the men a few weeks ago uh, at our barbecue, is you cannot lead people where you're not going. The reality is you just can't do that. Um, you cannot lead others where you yourself are not moving. So that goes back to the question, are you growing? Are you making spiritual progress in your walk? And so I want to kind of break this down into three parts tonight. I want us to look at the necessity of growth in grace. I want us to consider the markers of growth in grace. And then lastly, look at the mechanism of growth in grace. So the necessity of growth in grace, the markers of growth in grace, and thirdly, the mechanism, the means by which we grow in the grace and knowledge, as Peter exhorts us to do. So first, I want us to consider the necessity of growth in grace. And I want to, um, you know, define what I mean by that. When I say growing in grace, uh, I don't mean, I, this is what I don't mean, I do not mean growing in acceptance with God, okay? Make that clear. Growing, I do not mean growing uh, with security with God or growing in our justification with God or growing in our forgiveness with God. Um, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if he has justified you, you're never more justified than the moment you get saved, you are not guilty before God. You, are, you are, have peace with God, Romans 5. You, you, know, you are never more forgiven than the moment when you first believe. So when I say growth in grace, we're not talking about a Roman Catholic kind of mindset of infusion of greater grace. Well, no, we, we have, we're talking about we are never more justified than the moment we believe. Colossians 2 verse 10 says, In him you have been made complete. 
And we believe that. And that's, that's what the hope of the gospel is. So when I say growing in grace, I don't mean growing in our, in our justification. I don't mean growing in our forgiveness before God. That is, that is complete. What I mean is that we are growing in degree and size and strength and power of the um, expressions of that grace in our individual hearts and lives. In other words, we can have more or less faith as believers. We can have more or less uh, a hope that we walk around with day by day. We can have more or less love, more or less humility, more or less courage, zeal, and fill in the blank for all the you know, fruits of the Spirit. They can be, those things can be weak in our hearts or they can be strong. Um, they can be little uh, or they can be great. They can be steadfast. They can be fleeting. So what we're talking about is growth in the practical obedience to the standard to which we have attained in Christ. Our, our justification, we, we are who we are in Christ. And when we talk about growth in grace, we're talking about growing in terms of our sanctification, that we're, our lives are increasingly more and more set apart from sin in obedience to God and his word. This is, the, this is the expectation throughout the New Testament, and I just want to survey. We're going to be kind of moving around, so I encourage you, you can just listen if you don't want to uh, jump around, but you, know, you can always look at some of these passages with us if you feel so inclined. Second Thessalonians 1 in verse 3, Paul says, we ought, all, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged, and the love of each one of you toward the other grows ever greater. So, again, this picture is that, you know, this is, this is, and of course, the Thessalonians were a healthy church, and he's saying, you know, your, great, your knowledge of God, your love for each other, that is increasing. That is what, you know, it's not what it was before, it's, it's greater than it was before. 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 10, uh, Paul says there in his first letter, for indeed, uh, you do practice it, this, you know, love for each other, uh, toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia, but we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. He says, so there's more, to, there's more room to grow. There's greater capacity for you to, um, uh, to reach toward. First Thessalonians 3 and verse 12, he says, uh, he says, I want you to walk in a mer- manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So there's you know, there's a, there's a striving toward a, a, a goal and a, a, um, a greater sanctification. First Peter 2, um, first Peter 2 and verse 2, he says, Like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word so that by you may grow in respect to salvation. Now we're saved, but he's talking about growth in grace, growth in our sanctification. So there's other passages we could look at, but this lays bare this reality that growth in grace is a real thing and that God expects us to grow. He expects us to grow. And that's important. That's why there's, you know, the necessity of that is clear. It's biblical, it's real, and it's also very important for a number of reasons. One, a growth in grace is the best proof of your own spiritual health. Growth in grace is the best proof of your spiritual health. If you think about a, a, a child, right? If those of you who have children or nieces and nephews or, or just watch other children, or maybe you don't have any children, but you have a garden or a tree in your yard. If that thing is not growing, something's wrong, right? I, I kind of tried to re-landscape our backyard this spring, and many of the things I planted have not grown, <laughs> um, 
or I've had to shock them with increasing amounts of fertilizer, liquid fertilizer to sort of jar them loose. Because uh, the ground in our backyard is, is like Sodom and Gomorrah. It, is, it has been sown with salt. It is, nothing grows back there. It's just clay. It's terrible. Uh, and, but, um, but the plants are not doing well, and so they're not growing. And it's the same in real life. You know, just, just health and life in an animal or a plant always demonstrates itself by progress and growth. And it's the same, it's the same with our souls. Uh, think about 2 Corinthians chapter 3 uh, in verse 18. Uh, Paul is, you know, in, speaking of our sanctification um, there, and he, and he says, let no man, excuse me, that's 1 Corinthians, let's go to 2 Corinthians, totally different. Verse 18, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. This reality that, you know, this is, this is what health, spiritual health looks like. Thomas Watson said, true grace is progressive. It is of a spreading, growing nature. It is with grace as it is with light. First there is daybreak, then it shines brighter to the full noonday. A good Christian is not like Hezekiah's son that went backwards, nor Joshua's son that stood still, but is always advancing in holiness and increasing with the increase of God. So, so growth is the greatest demonstration of our spiritual health. Secondly, it's, it, growth and grace is important because it makes you useful to others. It makes you use, spiritually useful to others. Our influence upon others for their spiritual benefit is going to be largely connected to our growth, our progress in the faith. Unbelievers, they evaluate the, the validity of our claims when we preach the gospel, when we say Jesus is this, and this is what the Bible standard is, and so forth. They, they evaluate the validity of those claims with their eyes, just as much as they do with their ears. They look at you and they say, well, do, does he believe that? I, I can say from a personal perspective that my father's trust and obedience and, and, and the way in which he lived his life was a powerful influence on me as an unbelieving young person. I knew that the, the things that he believed about the word of God, he believed them and they were real to him. They made a difference in his life, the way he conducted his business, the way he treated other people, the way he conducted his, his own heart, the way he kind of shepherded his own heart. And so, you know, the Christian who's always at a standstill with the same faults and the same weaknesses and the same patterns of sin that dominate their lives, they're not going to be as useful to others. What makes the world take a step back and think is the man or the woman who's growing in grace. And uh, beyond that, if we can't even shoulder the weight of our own Christian lives, how are we ever going to bear the burdens of others? So we we can't be useful to others unless we are growing in grace. doesn't mean you have to be super strong to be useful. It just means you have to be growing. A th- uh, another reason why uh, it's a necessity that we grow in grace is it's the source of our greatest joy. It, it, it's the source of our greatest joy. Look at Romans chapter 15 and verse 13. He says, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So God has linked our joy and our growth together. It's, it's important that we grow because this is, this is how we have true and lasting joy. 
It's in our interest that we grow because our joy can be made complete. Uh, another reason why, why it's a necessity that we grow in grace is that it pleases God. It, it pleases God. Um, Hebrews chapter 13 and verses 15 and 16, the very end of this letter, the writer of Hebrews says, Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name, and do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Growth in grace, a life that is increasingly set apart to God, that pleases God. That brings him joy, that magnifies his name. As a, a gardener, to go back to this illustration, loves to see his plants flourishing. I would love to see my plants flourishing. <laughs> so it is with the Lord as we walk with him. Um, John 15 and verse 1 shows us that God delights in all of his children, but especially those who are growing, those who are bearing fruit. Um, you know, again, to tell an unbeliever to, uh, you know, to understand that, they, to, to tell an unbeliever that they can live a fruitless life and that's going to please God, is, it just doesn't make any sense. We can't, we can't possibly do that. So we must, we must grow in grace to, as a, and, and because of that growth, then we bring joy and, and glorify God. Uh, another reason that we must grow in grace is that we are accountable to God. Um, you're accountable to God. You know, we have to give an evaluation for our life at the end of the age. We have to, we have to give an accounting, you know. There, there is a, it's, not to, um, it's not that we will fail the test and not um, receive our eternal reward, but the enjoyment of that reward and the, the scope and our, under, I think, the understanding and uh, the, the magnitude in which we can take that in, that's going to be varied from degree to degree, from person to person. Um, there's a greater grace, James 4, verse 6 says. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So if you fail to grow, that's not God's fault as a believer. That's ours, our, our sanctification is not... Um, it is dependent upon God and his grace, but it is not entirely the work of God. It is a cooperative effort for the believer. So we can never... Uh, point the finger back in God and say, well, you, you didn't give me enough grace to do this or do that. No, he's given us. If you're in Christ, you have every spiritual resource at your disposal, and we will be held, held accountable for that. So those are some of the, the you know, just looking at the necessity of growth in grace. The second thing I want us to consider are um, what are the evidences or the markers of growth in grace? How do you know if that's happening in your life? i give you some things to help fill that in. Most people who profess Christ are going to say, yeah, I'm growing. But the reality is that we're often not the best judges of our own condition. We're, we're often quick to uh, affirm the little things that are changes that are happening, and we're slow to acknowledge the failures. Those around us, I think, have a much more accurate assessment of our condition than we do. So how can we know that we're growing? Are there unmistakable evidences in the Word of God that we can look to that will help us to evaluate our hearts? And, and I believe there are. Uh, first, 
How do you know if you're growing in grace? Well, one, there's going to be a greater faith and love in your heart towards Christ. The growing in grace means that you're going to have a greater faith and love toward, toward the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, look at Ephesians 3 in verses 15 to 19. Uh, Paul's praying here for the church, and he kind of interrupts himself at the beginning of chapter 3, and then uh, and he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. He kind of resumes his prayer in verse, verse 14. He says, From whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, and this is his prayer, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, and that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. So, um, there's a prayer of sanctification here for his church. And Paul says, I want you to know greater faith and love toward Christ. As we grow in grace and we grow deeper in our conviction about and affection for Christ, that is an evidence of, of progress in our Christian walk. When we were saved, we saw the glory of Christ. Hopefully we understood that, that he is who he is and, and we are hopeless sinners. And, and so there's a reality in which we are you know, we are uh, brought before him and, and, and our hearts are, are alerted to those things. But as we grow in Christ, we start to see a thousand other things about Christ that make him so precious. As we know the word of God better, we start to see, oh, wow, you know, and we start to see how all these things fit together. We see his offices as a substitute, as an intercessor, Hebrews 7, as our high priest, as our advocate, our physician, our shepherd, our friend, and fill in the blank with all the descriptors of Christ. We, we understand those things better, and, and now we love him more, and we appreciate and value those things in our hearts. Another mark of growth in grace is not only greater love and faith toward Christ, but greater love for other people. A greater love for other people. We, we know we are growing in grace when we have an increased love for others and especially for other Christians. First, first John chapter 2, verses 9 to 11, John says, The one who says he's in the light, okay, he's a believer, and yet hates his brother, he is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. You know, the love that we have toward others, especially other believers, will demonstrate itself in greater and more significant ways. There'll be a greater desire to be generous, to be thoughtful, to be considerate, to be sympathetic, kind, patient, forbearing, rather than fighting and quarreling. It always, con it always concerns me when believers love to argue. That really, that's a huge red flag for me as a pastor. They just love to nitpick. Uh, and and, and that, is a, that is a huge red flag for pastoral, as a pastor, because why would you want to do that? Why would you want to, uh, you know, this, to, to love others is to, love covers what? A multitude of sins. Someone who's growing in grace is going to be willing to believe the best, hope the best, endure all things 
There's no greater indication of backsliding and immaturity than fault-finding, nitpicking, dwelling upon others' weaknesses. A third mark of grace is greater humility. Greater humility. The man whose soul is growing in grace feels his own sinfulness and unworthiness more and more every year. I can testify to this as I'm walking with the Lord now for 20 years or so, 20 plus years. Um, I feel my sin more than I ever did as a young person. And, um, and yet, hopefully, I'm more sanctified than I was 20 years ago. So it's kind of a catch-22. Isaiah 6 and verse 5, when he was confronted with, Isaiah was, we saw this, when he was confronted with the holiness of God, he just, he was broken. Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. Um, There's a recognition as Job understood, and he says, you know, uh, first I thought I know you, now I know you and I understand myself. You know, God says, where were you? And all these things that he did to create the world and hold its, you know, he says, Job says, man, I repent in dust and ashes. The closer we draw near to God and the more of his holiness that we behold in his word, the more we see our own sin. We see our own perfections, not just externally, but internally. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 3 verse 12, I am the the least of all the saints. He, He says, I'm the chief of sinners. Um. J.C. Ryle talks about when the corn is young and immature, the ears point straight up. But as it matures, it begins to droop and hangs lower and lower until it's pointed straight down. That's a fitting analogy for us as believers. The riper we are for glory, the lower our heads ought to hang in humility. We see our shortcomings more and more. We feel the weight of our own sin more intensely. So um, uh, a fourth mark of greater... Uh, growth or growth in grace is greater holiness of life. I know that some of these are overlapping a little bit, but greater holiness of life, greater victory over sin. We, 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 we clearly have a greater victory over sin, the world, and the devil. We have a greater victory over our anger, more control over our speech, greater purity of mind and action. We're more alert to, the, to our conduct in every situation. We're just, we're just godlier. <laughs> we're just more sanctified. The way we think, the way we respond, the way we um, evaluate the situations that are around us. First John 3, verse 3. Everyone who has this hope, this hope of Christ fixed on him, what? Purifies himself just as he, God, is pure. Paul says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He's, he's laying aside what was behind him and reaching forward, he said, to what lies ahead. This is... This is what we need to be. The man or woman who's growing looks with ever greater anticipation toward heaven, not just because Christ and, um, and the saints are there, although that's a wonderful blessing, but we also look for heaven because there's a greater and a complete separation of sin that will take place. We'll no longer be encumbered by the flesh. Another mark of um, growth in grace is a greater appetite for spiritual things. Greater appetite for spiritual things. What we love best, what we love more and more are the things that belong to Christ and not the things of this world. Again, 1 John 2, 
In verse 15, says, uh, John says, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world, he says, is passing away, and also its desires or its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. The world's amusements, the world's preoccupations, the world's pursuits, those have a decreasing, as we grow in grace, a decreasing sway over our hearts. They just don't move us like they did when we were younger in the faith. And it's not that some of those things are necessarily sinful or that those who enjoy them are on the path to hell, but the fact is that those things have a diminishing grip on our hearts. They have a diminishing grasp on our affections. So we can kind of take them or leave them. What, but what really grips our hearts, what really locks us in, are spiritual things. Compan- you know, spiritual companions, spiritual work, spiritual conversations. Like that's what gets, that's what gets us excited. That's what, that's what we pursue. That's what we want in our heart of hearts. Another mark of growth in grace is a greater passion to do good to souls. A greater passion to do good to souls. We have a greater zeal, for example, to see sinners one to Christ and to share the gospel with others, that they would know him. We have a, we have a clear vision that everyone who is um, outside of the hope that we have in Christ will, there's a reality that they live forever, and they will have to give an accounting before God, and they, will pass, they won't pass that test. And so there's a desire to, to make sure that they hear the gospel, know the gospel, pleading with them to turn. But not just that we have a passion for unbelievers to, sit, to see them one to Christ, but also we have a greater desire to, um, to do good to believers. Galatians 3, uh, Galatians chapter 3, and, uh, excuse me, 6, chapter 6 and verse 9 and 10 He says, uh, let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. We we don't want to grow tired in doing good. We want to do good to everybody, and we want to be especially, especially attuned to do well and do good to, to other Christians. It's not that we care less for unbelievers. Because we don't, but we learn to expect less from unbelievers. And so we understand that not every effort is going to succeed. Not every work that we do is going to bear fruit. We just keep on working. We keep on giving. We keep on praying. We keep on preaching, speaking, visiting, serving. We, we do it because um, that's what pleases the Lord. However the Lord's going to use us is going to use us. So in a sense, the work is its own reward. Um, I think a number of you met uh, our sister Jody's father this morning, um, John. He has become a, a, a wonderful uh, blessing to our family. Every year that they visit, we usually have an opportunity to get together with them and just catch up. And, and he was praying with me before he left today. And, and one of the things he prayed just kind of knocked me over. I'd, I don't know why it was such a shock, but it, it just caught me off guard and and I think it exact, understands this point. He prayed for me and for our church, but he prayed that my joy would not be, um, that I would have joy in ministry, uh, but not because of what that is happening 
amongst other people in the church, but because I have the privilege of serving the Lord. And I was just like, man, like what a, what a complete like reality check. Like that's the joy. The joy is the fact that we get to serve God in his church and not what other people are doing or not doing. So those are some of the marks of, you know, growth, growth in godliness. Uh, greater love and faith toward Christ, greater love for others, you know, greater humility, greater holiness of life, greater appetite for spiritual things, greater passion to do good to souls. So if those things are, in, um, are happening in your life and in your heart, then praise God for that. That's, that's all his doing. We don't get to get credit for that. But there's a, there's a way that we can make that a reality in our hearts so that we can be primed and ready to make and mature disciples of Christ who are running to win. And so that brings us to the final point, which is what is the mechanism of growth in grace? We've talked about its necessity. We've talked about what it looks like. How do we get that? How do we make that reality for us? Because James says that every good and perfect gift comes down from above, and that's true as it relates to our growth in grace. We don't get to get credit for that as believers. Growth is a gift of God, but we cannot fall victim to this trap of thinking that people who are growing in grace are what they are by some zap from God, that it just sort of falls out of the sky. Like, oh, well, happened to you, didn't happen to me. No, God has ordained the ends, but he's also ordained the means to those ends. Many believers look at other Christians and they wish that they were like them. I wish I had the faith like Steve, or I wish I had the wisdom of, of, of Chris, or I wish I had the love of the lost for like so-and-so or whoever, fill in the blank. And we think, man, you know, I wish I could do that. As if somehow those other people were more fortunate and we should just be content where we are. But here's what we need to know. Generally speaking, growing souls are what they are because they have applied themselves more fervently and more seriously to the means that God has ordained. That's the reality of it. You're going to be more godly. Most people who are godly, uh, they, di- they didn't happen to them by accident. They were more fervent, more serious, more disciplined to make use of the means which God has ordained, and therefore they have seen the fruit of that in their lives. So, you know, If you're a Christian, you're a child of God with great spiritual capacity and significant spiritual responsibility. We need to press on into those things. So how do we do it? What's the mechanisms? What are the mechanisms? Uh, First, there is a diligence in the use of the private disciplines of grace. There's a uh, people who are, the mechanism by which we grow is a diligence in the use of the private disciplines of grace. Look at 1 Peter 4 and verse 6. Uh, first, did I say 1 Peter? I meant 1 Timothy 4 and verse 6. Excuse me. And 7. Uh, 1 Timothy 4, verse 6. In pointing out these things, speaking to Timothy, in pointing out these things to the brethren about rejecting false teaching and all this stuff, he says, You will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of sound doctrine which you have been following. But he says, have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. And then he goes on to say that bodily discipline is of little profit. It is beneficial, but it has a minimal effect. But godliness is profitable for everything since it holds promise for this present life and also for the life 
to come. So we need to be diligent in the use of these private disciplines of grace. What I mean by disciplines of grace? I mean those means that you have to use yourself. You have to use yourself alone. No one can use them for you. Things like um, reading the scriptures and studying them, private prayer, meditation on the word of God, self-examination. Like those are things that you have to do for yourself. If you, if you don't discipline yourself for, to do these things, you will not grow. It's not going to happen to you. This is the foundation of growth in grace. I, I can't use them for you. If you're married, your wife can't use them for you. Fellow believers in the church aren't going to be able to use them for you. Like This is on you, and it's on me. And so if we aren't disciplining ourselves for the purpose of godliness, it's going to be very difficult to grow. So when people are lazy about reading the Word of God throughout the week and inconsistent in their times of prayer and indifferent to make time to really chew on and meditate upon God's Word and they don't stop to examine their own hearts and, and, and they, they do that day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, and then they're amazed that they, they just don't have any victory over sin. Like, well, how did you think it was going to happen? They're amazed that serving God's people is, is exhausting and, it's, and, and there's no desire for that anymore. Well, of course. You're, you haven't trimmed your sails to fill it with the Spirit's truth. We fill up our time with a thousand other things and we let all the, the means of grace get crowded out and we wonder why we're not growing. So the first thing when you do is carve out time for the private disciplines of grace. You know, have a schedule I put it in my calendar. Every morning I get a prompt. Not that I need a reminder, but it's like, read the Bible. <laughs> it like pops up every morning, just as a kind of a final reminder if I'm getting into other things. Uh, and, and truth be told, I don't always get to it when I get the reminder, but I, it's a good like visual thing like, okay, read the Bible. <laughs> you think, well, you're a pastor, but yeah. But I'm reading it for my own soul, not to not to teach a lesson, not to craft a sermon, not to, um, you know, I just want to read it to know it. I set a reminder, carve out a time, do what you have to do to make it a reality week, day in and day out. So we need to be diligent in the private means of grace. Uh, secondly, a mechanism by which we grow is to be diligent to fellowship with the Lord Jesus. Diligent to fellowship with the Lord Jesus. Now, when we talk about fellowship or communion with the Lord, we aren't talking about the Lord's table, although that is a means of grace. We'll get to that. We're talking about daily fellowship with the Savior that can only be had by faith in prayer and meditation as we look at the Word of God. So real communion, a giving and receiving that happens, spiritually speaking, uh, we look at the offices of Christ. He's our bridegroom, our head, our physician, our advocate, our shepherd, our master. All of those offices and roles that he occupies, they imply closeness. They employ, imply a familiarity that is true of us between, uh, between us and Christ. Uh, look at Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. Galatians 2.20, we've memorized that as a church. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me 
and gave himself up for me. I mean, there, this is just a, there's a, there's a sense in which Christ is in me. And I long to have communion and fellowship with him. Philippians 1 verse 21, for me to live, Paul says, is Christ. Uh, and so when we talk about having fellowship with Christ, it's not just a mere general trust in Christ. It's a relational um, closeness that prompts us to turn to him first in every need, to talk to him about every difficulty, to consult with his, him and his word as we go through our day, to pour out our sorrows before him, to share our joys with him. Like this is what, this is what it is to have a friendship with God. It is to live every moment in light of of his sight, his leaning on him, looking to him. If we do that, we will grow. We will grow. A third mechanism by which, and these are all, it's not either one, it's, all of these really should be ours. Uh, a third mechanism is to be diligent in the public means of grace, the public disciplines of grace. I mean those means of grace that you have at your disposal as a member of the visible church. Um, Hebrews chapter 10, 24 and 25 are verses that, that we know well. They're often quoted as reminding you to come to church every week. Not that you need a reminder, but you guys are here. You're the faithful. <laughs> Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds and not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but is encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. You know, corporate worship, Having that week in and week out, that is a means of God's grace. It's sanctifying. When I don't go to church, those periods of time in my life where I've had gaps of time where I wasn't at church were not fruitful spiritually. And so we need to be in fellowship. We need to be with God's people on the Lord's Day. If we neglect that, we are starving our soul and we will not grow. And so one of the things we have to guard against uh, and, and sometimes we can come and be here, but we're not really here. So we have to guard our sense, ourselves against familiarity and laziness when we are in fellowship with God's people. You know, and it, it, I get it. There's a, there's, a, there's a blessing and a curse that comes with repetition and things that are familiar. The, the blessing is that you don't have to think about things as much. And so you're able to fully engage them. But the curses that become familiar... So our order of service, week in and week out, is very similar. And so the, 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 the concern is that, well, it's just sort of like up, down, left, right, you know, B-A, B-A, select, start. Like you, just, like you just know it. You just do it. You do it automatically. But that's not what we want. We come, we want those, the repetition of Sunday mornings and the structure of the services and the, the aspects of the service, the scripture reading and, and the prayer and the preaching of, your, of the word, like those things are meant to be engaged with our whole heart and our whole mind. And so, and so we have to uh, guard against indifference and come ready to worship. You know, and that, that means maybe cu- cutting back our activities on, Sunday, uh, on Saturdays and su- Saturday evenings so that we're not exhausted. Uh, it might mean, it, it might mean uh, getting up early and, and actually taking time to read and pray and and like plan to leave maybe 20 minutes earlier than you're used to leaving so that you're here on time and ready to go when the service starts and you're not distracted and you're not rushed. We want to be fully engaged when we come 
together. When our physical appetite drops off, that's a signal that something is wrong in our health, right? In the same way, when our spiritual appetite drops off, that's an indication our spiritual health is, is in decline. So we come ready to sing, ready to serve, ready to speak with one another in the truth. This is, this is a benefit to all, and it's a benefit to our own hearts. We want to make use of that. The Lord's table, that's why we, we, we were, uh, son and I were convicted, at least I was convicted, and then I convicted him. <laughs> it's pretty much how it went, right? I mean, like, no one was really thinking about it. But when we talked through 1 Corinthians 9, I was convicted that we needed to make the Lord's table a more consistent more frequent reality in our worship service because, because in that moment we are reminded of the truth of the gospel. In that moment we are reminded that we are one church. In that moment we're reminded of the things that are yet to come. Like, why not do that more frequently? Why is once a month? I don't know where once a month came from. But that's kind of the norm in a lot of evangelical churches. But really, why not every week? So we need to be faithful in that. A fourth mechanism, you know, private, uh, private um, disciplines of grace, fellowship with Christ, diligence in the public means of grace, worship, Lord's table, those kinds of things. Uh, a fourth, diligence over the little matters of everyday life. Diligence that um, encompasses the little matters of everyday life. We need to learn to guard the little things as well as the big things. Sometimes small sins have an outsized impact on our mood, our attitude, our joy, our zeal. Uh, our temper can, can set everything in the wrong direction. Our words can set everything in a, in a bad direction. How, how we spend our free time can actually destroy and zap our spiritual zeal. We need to watch all of it. We need to be alert to all of it. Life is made up of days, and days are made up of hours, and hours are made up of minutes, and we need to redeem all of it, Ephesians 5 says. All of it. And when a tree begins to decay, you notice it first in the outer edges and the little branches. And that's something that we should be careful of. J.C. Ryle again says, We must aim to have a Christianity which, like the sap of a tree, runs through every twig and leaf of our character and sanctifies it. So we want to have diligence over the little things, not just the big things. Fifth, yeah, fifth, what, uh, what we, a mechanism by which we grow in grace is to be watchful to guard the company that we keep. Be watchful to guard the company that we keep. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 33, says, Paul reminds us that bad company corrupts good morals. James 4 and verse 4, he says, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So we need to be careful what kind of company we keep. Now, we naturally begin to imitate what we value and what occupies our time. Like what, the people we talk with, the people we socialize with, those are the, you know, those are the things that um, we begin to imitate. And the point that Paul's making and the point that James is making is that Christian, for us as Christians, it's not that we shouldn't have uh, unbelieving friends. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying that we should try and isolate ourselves from unbelievers entirely and separate ourselves from unbelievers. But we shouldn't invest the bulk of our time and energy 
in cultivating friendships with those who are the enemy of God. Now, we should want to cultivate friendships for the purpose of discipleship, and we'll talk about that next time. But we want to make sure that we're investing the bulk of our time and energy in developing relationships with believers because they're the ones that are going to influence us for good, for truth, and righteousness. Mistakes in friendship and mistakes in marriage, for some, have everything to do with why they aren't growing. So we need to be careful. We need to be careful. And I I want to use a caveat there. It's not that we're not to have friendships with unbelievers. I do not want you to take away from this that, oh, I need to stop talking to my unbelieving coworkers. I need to stop talking to my unbelieving relatives. No, no, no. You can, you can still cultivate those relationships. But if you have a limited amount of time and choice, then you want to make sure that you're making time for the people of God too, that you're developing spiritual friendships that will help you grow in grace. Instead, we ought to seek out those friendships with those who stir us up to read the Word of God, pray more fervently, serve the church with greater faithfulness. We ought to seek out spiritual friendships with those who who cause us to um, examine our hearts and cause us to think more deeply about our salvation and about eternity. Like That's what's going to help us grow. It's like some of you have um, played competitive sports, whether it's basketball, football, whatever, you you realize that you don't <laughs> you don't get better playing with scrubs. <laughs> Does that make sense? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, you know. All right. <laughs> you don't get better. You you don't grow in your skill set by playing with people who are much worse than you. And it, it may elevate your ego, but in the end, you grow by playing with people who are better than you. People who are who are quick on their feet. People who are strong people, you know, those, you play with them for a while and then you go back and play with the scrubs and you're like, these people are terrible and you just dominate them. It's not a perfect analogy, but, but as we, if we're, if we're quote unquote playing with scrubs, unbelievers, and, and we're, we're, you know, then that's not helping us grow spiritually. That's why worship is such an, you know, corporate worship is so important. That's why biblical fellowship is so important. So we want to we want to make time for those things, and and then there's a, but we need to also be that greater person for others, and that's where the discipleship component will come in next time as we look at that. So um, that's kind of what I have. I, a couple of points of application or questions for application, just to help you think through this, and then we'll wrap up here because I'm way over time. I said this was going to be short. I lied. <laughs> Not intentionally, so. As you think about the private means of grace that we talked about, reading God's word, prayer, meditation, what are some of, this is just a point of application, what are some of the excuses you tell yourself to justify a lack of consistency? And how can you guard against that, those excuses? Just a point of consideration. What, you know, what are some of the excuses you give busy, tired, whatever, that you use? And how can you guard against that? A second kind of uh, application question, what are two, one or two little matters of everyday life that you know need, you need to bring into line with the Word of God? What's, and then what steps are you going to take to make those things a reality? You know, may, maybe, it's, um, maybe it's kind of a, a somewhat benign but not edifying hobby. 
And, and maybe that's really zapping your spiritual joy. Maybe that's something that needs to be put on the back burner. A third question, when the church gathers in the Lord's day, what practices or habits might be distracting you from engaging corporate worship with their whole heart and whole mind? Think about it. Is it, is it, is it, a, is it kind of a, a pattern of, of like planning out a lot to do on Saturday, Sunday, Saturday evening so that you, you're always kind of threadbare and wandering in here like half alert? And You know, what is it? Uh, maybe you just need to make Saturday nights like... One thing that um, I found was I, I really wanted to keep this night open for having people over, but I was telling Tricia it's hard. It's hard for me to have um, a, a huge um, uh, kind of block of time with having people in the home on Saturday evenings because that's kind of a time for me to go over notes and sort of just kind of rest my mind and get ready. We used to we used to invite people over. Um, a lot of times newer folks and, and every once in a while something would kind of blow up in those conversations and it would just take me completely, my mind and heart completely out of the place it needed to be on Sunday morning. So we just said, you know what, Saturday evenings is like, is sort of like a- absolutely necessary. We just try to keep that evening free. We'll do something during the day and we'll do things, you know, in the afternoon and stuff, but later in the evening, you know, that's just helpful. And maybe that's beneficial for you to think about. Um, and lastly... Um, if we're in Christ, we've been united to him, our spiritual life is bound up in his. But oftentimes, we, we live below our privileges and we neglect communion with him. What, what situations do you find most difficult to maintain fellowship with the Lord? Is it when you're under pressure? Is it when you're making plans and decisions? Like, what is it? Why, why do you think that's such a challenge? When you think about the the um, roles that Christ plays, shepherd, advocate, master, and so forth, what might prompt you to come to him more readily in those situations? So just some some practical stuff. So what we want to look at next time is, now that we have kind of laid out what we are to be, to purposely exemplify in oneself growth and godliness, measurable spiritual progress, next time we want to consider How do we reproduce that in others? What are some ways that we can do that? And we'll look at that next time. Let's pray. Father, thank you uh, for your word and for it's just, um, it just speaks to every issue of life. Our, Our minds are gripped by these things. We know that we need to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord. And Lord, I see that happening in our church and so does Son and others. So we thank you for those evidences of growth and grace. Help us to strive toward the mark. Help us to excel still more. If there's things that we need to lay aside, every encumbrance of sin that might be entangling us, help us to cast that aside by your grace and by your power and allow us to walk in faithfulness to you. All this, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. For more information, or more messages like this, visit us at cascadesbiblechurch.com or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.